This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby is back tomorrow. Great to be with you as always. As Bob just reported in the news, Ontario's Financial Accountability Officer has released a special health care report saying the province is expected to be short 33,000 nurses and personal support workers in five years. In addition, the report reveals the government will be short $21 billion to cover its commitments to expand hospitals, long-term care, and home care. The FAO also says the province could address the funding shortfall by incrementally spending more in upcoming budgets and providing a boost from Ontario's balloon contingency fund. There's already been a response from the health minister's office, which says the province is investing heavily in health care, has reduced wait times for key surgeries, and broke records by registering more new nurses in 2022. In other words, everything's fine. Nothing to see here. Now, time for the medical record. Let me introduce you to our medical record panelists, Dr. Malcolm Moore, medical oncologist at Princess Margaret Cancer Center. Dr. Fahad Razak is an internist and epidemiologist at Unity Health Toronto. And Dr. Alyssa Naiman, family physician and founder and medical director of the Medical Station in Toronto. Hello to you all. Hello. Hi, good to be with you. I'll go around the table and ask each of you what you make of the FAO's special health care report and the health minister's reaction. Dr. Razak. Yeah, I think we're just uh, just learning about this report this morning. So uh, details still to be looked over carefully. Certainly, I think it highlights uh, something that all of us would be concerned about and we've observed over the last few months, which is that staffing is currently and will remain at least into the foreseeable future a major challenge. Uh, to the delivery of safe healthcare in this province and in this country. Uh, specifically, I think what this report has highlighted is that the gap in things like nursing care, personal support workers, uh, in fact, will be very hard to overcome, especially given that we have an aging population, which is going to draw on both of these resources to a greater extent uh, over the next few years, and that the funding that will be required to pay for the increase in demand will be significant. So we're talking about in the many billions of dollars over the next four to five years, the amount of funding required. Um, the other part of about this report that was really important is that it confirmed uh, that this past year was one of the most challenging for our healthcare system, record wait times in the emergency room, uh, over 20 hours on average, which is a record for this province, uh, at least the highest level in the last 15 years, and that there was a rash of closures across the province, uh, more than 140 emergency department closures, again, telling you about the staffing challenges we're facing. Dr. Razak, do you find the health minister's uh, statement and reaction to this report almost dismissive? Sorry, that's a bit of a leading question, but that that's how it came across to me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, I didn't, I didn't hear the response to it. I think the uh, government has clearly prioritized increasing the amount of healthcare workers in the system. Many people, including myself, have highlighted that the gap is enormous, and there's a legitimate question about whether what is planned will meet that gap. And, and, and I think there are some uh, questions as well about uh, some of the policies that are now being contested in the court around, for example, for example, limiting pay raises among nursing staff, whether that is worsening the problem considering we are already in a crisis. So I do think that this report further highlights the need to be really open-minded about addressing these staffing problems. And part of that is compensation for people who are very highly in demand, not only in Ontario, but across the country and across the world. You have to pay people like nurses properly in order to retain them. Let's go over to Dr. Naiman, your reaction to the report and uh, to the health minister's statement there that everything is fine. Um, I would say that the themes that have come out in the report are consistent from what we've been hearing for the last couple of weeks and last couple of months that there are shortages in terms of human health resources, 
the waits for people in the emergency departments just continue to increase. There are shortages that we haven't seen in years before, and that there's just going to be increasing demand for all of these services in the future as our population ages. This is all really just a reflection of the, the chronic underfunding of the healthcare system over the last 20 years and, the, and not uh, having the number of beds that have been required. Um, as in regards to the statement from the, from the Minister of Health, it's sort of consistent with what she always says whenever there's any type of report or anything that comes out that criticizes or is critical of what will happen in the future. It's always the same message that we're hiring all of these nurses and we're bringing in all of these PSWs. As we've already discussed in previous weeks and, and now today, if you don't pay nurses a fair wage and they don't get rid of this Bill 124, then people will not work within the system. And that really needs to be changed. And the government, you know, is appealing the previous decision and it just has to stop. It's really very hard for anybody within the healthcare system to work when this is the message that we get from the government. Dr. Moore, would it be fair to say that the FAO report uh, is taking into consideration what is happening right now, as opposed to what the health minister is saying in terms of what is expected in investments? Well, Jane, just to put this in perspective, uh, we have about 100,000 nurses in Ontario and about 100,000 personal support workers. So an increase of 33,000 uh, is a significant increase. And I would assume by this they mean increasing the total number to 233,000, not the number we have to train to replace the nurses and PSWs who are retiring and moving out of the system. Mm-hmm. So again, as was mentioned, this is a really significant number. And any solution to this is not going to be immediate. It involves training, changes in registration, things like that. And so I think that to be fair, the government has made health human resources one of its big priorities in its health policy. So I think what we need to see is that translated into an actual action plan, which will address this degree of uh, shortage. I'd like to get our Zoomer radio listeners in on the conversation as well. And just mention that this report uh, that literally has just come out in the last hour follows a different report from Ontario's patient ombudsman, which reveals complaints in 2021-22 were up by 43% and primarily focused on lack of attention and sensitivity by staff toward patients in hospital emergency rooms. And, and that's where I'd like to bring you into the conversation. Have you been to an emergency room over the last year or two? And what was your experience? Uh, what were you witnessing in terms of how the staff was managing with the patient flow and whether there were enough nurses, enough administrators, uh, enough triage nurses uh, to keep things going? Numbers to call are 416-360-0740 or one 866 740. Dr. Razak, it's all part and parcel, isn't it? Uh, what the patient ombudsman was saying yesterday and what the FAO is saying today. Yeah, look, we're starting to get uh, a much clearer picture, I think, of what we have observed and experienced now over the last uh, year, especially, but leading into this crisis as well, which is, you know, it's really damning in terms of the demand in the system relative to its capacity. And that demand has exceeded capacity across multiple sectors, whether it is pediatric care or adult care, the number of nurses needed, personal support workers. And you've seen, for example, many healthcare workers retiring much earlier than expected. That is the pressures that they are feeling. And those pressures manifest in things like early retirements, but also in not being sensitive to the needs of patients. I I think we've all been there in the healthcare system where the pressures are enormous, uh, we're understaffed, the volumes of patients are going up, and you're not your best self sometimes, I have to say. It's happened to me. I feel terrible about it. I think it's probably happened to many of my colleagues, and I'm frankly not surprised. It is putting a very important human face on the pressures that we're experiencing in the system. Uh, I, I think that we need to take in, in, in each, when you take these two reports together, the patient ombudsman report and now the, the report from the financial office, these are two official agencies providing a very clear picture of the cracks that have formed now and the fact that they're probably going to get worse, not better in the years to come 
because of the demographic trends that we've already talked about an aging population. So this is a very, very serious call to action, I think, and we really need to see some details that are going to address the scope of the problem. I really appreciate the way you uh, put that into words, Dr. Razak, because, I mean, regardless of what we all do, if you're very busy at work, you don't tend to have a whole lot of time for small talk, and you may not be as sensitive uh, to people you're interacting with because you're trying to get your job done. So, Dr. Naiman, this just seems to be human nature. Absolutely. I I think it's three years of burnout um, since the time of the pandemic and the demands that are placed amongst healthcare workers has just skyrocketed and there's just so much to do and you exist within the system and the system is fractured and the system is breaking down. People come in, they're very vulnerable, they're in pain, they're scared and you just don't have the ability to cope and to help people in the manner that you would if you had the supports that were in place. It's, it's really very challenging for people to work these days. Dr. Moore, would you like to add to um, the conversation here about the patient ombudsman and his report and, and observations? Well, you know, I, I think we're, we're all super busy, yeah, but that doesn't excuse bad behavior, to be honest with you. And uh, my sense, because, we, you know, we're all, we all work in the health system, but we also all access the healthcare system, I would have to say the biggest challenge in emergency is really the wait times. And what I hear from my patients uh, is that they find that the waiting, the amount of time they have to wait in emergencies is very stressful. And the, typically the comment is that the people who dealt with them were wonderful, uh, but and they appreciate, I think the patients appreciate how busy the staff are. And so I, I, I don't think it's a systemic problem. Uh, obviously, there are individuals who maybe be disrespectful for patients, but I don't think I would say it's a general phenomenon. I'm with our medical record panel. It's Jane for Libby. That's Dr. Malcolm Moore. Dr. Fahad Razak is with us, as well as Dr. Alyssa Naiman. Uh, and you as well, your experiences in the emergency room, uh, the wait times, um, how frazzled the staff is, uh, the burnout, uh, which is contributing to perhaps a lack of sensitivity in dealing with patients. Let's go to the phones now. And by the way, the numbers to call 416-360-0740 or toll free. 1-866-740-4740. Lou in Mississauga, you're on the air. Hi, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. What's your story? So I, I had a, a simple uh, bicycle injury where uh, I ended up uh, falling off my bike. I hit my head and uh, they recommended that I uh, go to a hospital and get checked out. Um, I got there at 6 p.m. and uh, I was there until 7 a.m. Right. So it it was it was and and the rooms were all full like there was no uh, I don't know if it was availability or what the situation was but it was uh, extremely uh, frustrating being there for uh, you know thirteen hours and Lou at the end of these thirteen hours what was the medical attention you received um, so I had to go back the next day to another hospital in Etobicoke to get um, what they call like like a, some kind of a scan. Mm-hmm. And you waited all that time to to get that appointment. Well, thank you very much for calling in and sharing your story. Well, thank you. Have a great day. You too. Let's go to June in Toronto. June, go ahead. Good afternoon. How are you doing? Uh, Fine. Do you have a story about being in Emerge? Uh, Yeah. Two two or three weeks ago, I was doing errands, and I suddenly was seized with horrible dizziness and throwing up in the car. It was um, and, and because I thought I detected uh, blood in, the, in um, vomit, I thought I should go to emergency, which I did. And it was like a zoo. Um, it was an hour or more before we even were seen by a triage nurse. Uh, you check in and you, you uh, put on a, you, you enter your information on a computer right away. And I suppose they use that as your as as part of the queue. I'm not sure. In any event, um, it was 12 hours from the time we arrived until the time we left. Um, the staff was fabulous. No complaint. Once I was seen, I felt very cared for. They did 
the tests. They were, um, I mean, it was the experience. Like I said, once once I was seen, it was was lovely, right? Uh, well, so, but the waiting time is uh, it's wild. It's just there were children in there. Like I don't know how young mothers with children managed it. Yeah, quite honestly. Yeah. No, I, I I hear you and I appreciate your call. Thank you, June, uh, for phoning in. Dr. Razak, um, you know, the calls, the, the small sample that we've just spoken with, aren't worried about how the staff is dealing with them. It seems more the wait. Yeah, I, I think that puts a really human face on it. And, you know, this is this actually echoes what Dr. Moore said, which is that the wait in some, te- in some ways is the most difficult part of the process. And by the time you go through that wait, everyone is on edge. Um, the, the staff on the other end are often rushed, but the, the person who is suffering has been now waiting for an incredibly long period of time. And I do think that it really, you know, one of the things about this, this the fiscal office uh, accountability report that came out, it started to put some numbers to it. It, it, it you know, it, it, it described the wait times over 20 hours, 145 uh, unplanned emergency room visits. But that data is actually not very easy to get. And I suspect, and again, this report just came out, that the emergency department closure number actually came from some work done by Toronto Star Health Journalists where they had to go through media reports to try and tabulate the number of emergency room closures. It wasn't publicly reported. And I do think that part of what I'd like to see in this discussion or what what happens uh, going forward is that some of these numbers are reported more openly. Like, after all, we are, as taxpayers, paying for this system. I think there should be some public reporting around this so we can get a sense of how each of these areas is hopefully improving, but also the variability, because some of the most affected areas are the smaller towns within the province. And I don't think we have an accurate picture of that right now. We're getting the human stories like your callers, but I think we need some data to really give us a sense of the scope of the problem and hopefully some way to track improvement over time. All right, let's switch topics with our medical record panel, and that uh, certainly we will be following up on uh, ER wait times and sensitivity in ERs and nurses uh, that need to be hired in order for the system to continue working. Let's talk about this developing story of a controversial new partnership at the Ottawa Hospital that's allowing for a private corporation to lease operating and recovery rooms on Saturdays. Dr. Naiman, what is going on here? So it's my understanding that um, the hospital has signed an agreement with a private corporate company, which is made up of physicians, and that they rent out the space um, within the hospital so that these doctors can perform orthopedic surgeries. And this company is then responsible for staffing it. And so there's been a lot of uproar as to how this is going to be as how are patients going to be selected for for this Saturday? How are um, nurses going to be paid? That they're this is a separate job. They're not part of the union. They don't have benefits. You know, if they're injured, so there's a lot of issues that have been brought up in terms of queuing and people accessing care, human health resources, and and once again, the government ha- has not really been forthcoming in providing answers to people about about this uh, this new. Um, operation that's existing. Well, right. And Dr. Moore, as far as we know, this would this be the first kind of arrangement like this? And, and, and which makes you wonder, how did it come to be? Well, you know, Jane, I think if we can call these sorts of arrangements, for the lack of a better word, semi-private, I mean, the government has indicated an openness to looking at some of these arrangements to try and improve access, which, you know, is a problem. I think the challenge is that you really need to have a set of principles around how these semi-private operations are going to operate so that whatever arrangements, and there will be many, uh, is proposed uh, has to meet certain principles around equity, access, quality, etc. So it becomes problematic when you start to look at individual arrangements if you don't have this set of principles clearly established. And I I think the government probably is in the process of doing it. The other thing you have to be very careful about is that in these sorts of arrangements, uh, there's the potential for conflicts of interest. So if you've got a group of surgeons negotiating with the surgery department at the hospital, you know, you have to make sure that... um, you know, 
the head of surgery is not involved in the company that's actually negotiating with the hospital. So uh, these things can be a bit tricky. So I think it, it potentially could be interesting. It makes sense in many ways for these extra procedures to actually be done in hospitals because they have the facilities and the capability to do it. The other sort of question that comes up, though, is uh, what we saw in the report was that they will pay nurses, et cetera, uh, at a significant premium uh, to do this. And, you know, the report before we talked about the fact that we, there's a major shortage of nurses. So then that raises the question of where are these nurses going to come from? And, you know, maybe in the short term, these will be nurses who are already working a full shift and are burned out and then do extra work for extra money. Right. But I think over time, uh, this is in some way going to be stealing staff from the public system, which I think would be another principle that we would agree uh, could not could not happen in these sort of semi-private arrangements. Right. I mean, there is a hospital employee who spoke anonymously to the Toronto Star uh, that they feared losing their job and they're being offered as well a flat rate of seven fifty a day. Uh, this is a nurse, a registered nurse, uh, which is double what an average RN or RPN would make on a regular hospital shift. So I guess, Dr. Razak, two more questions on this. Why, uh, okay, why would a, an emergency or why would a, an operating room sit empty on a Saturday? Why isn't the public system uh, performing surgeries on Saturdays and Sundays? And secondly, uh, if you were a nurse, wouldn't you work rather work for the 750 uh, rather than uh, half of that during the week? Well, I mean, so, so to both of your points, why? So operating rooms at many hospitals have staffing hours that are fairly limited, 9 to 4 approximately, Monday to Friday, indicating that there is an enormous amount of unused capacity within the public system of these resources that are already paid for by taxpayers over many decades to expand capacity right away without having to rely on any private sector to be involved. And I do think that many people who have asked why privatization is right step, myself included, have made that point. You have an existing resource-intensive capacity that could be expanded that is simply empty outside of typical working hours. That includes later into the day or earlier in the day on weekdays and also on weekends uh, where those resources could be used. The second point I'd make is that um, the the health and human resources is what many have flagged, like Dr. Moore said, and, and we've said on prior uh, on prior, prior panels, why would someone who's being paid much more in the private system continue to work in the public system? Yeah. This is the fundamental problem. This is a simple economic trade-off. If you have a mortgage and bills to pay and one person is paying you double what you'll pay in another system, why wouldn't you move into the private system? The problem, of course, is we're dealing with a system in the public system, which is already very constrained for staffing. So I, I think both of these are very good points. And the, the final point I would make is that um, – this uh, this increase in capacity, the optimal way that it should be managed is through single intake for the province. So right now, if you're living or have access to a center that has more capacity, just by virtue of being in a big city or a specific part of the province, you may have different wait times than you would in some of our smaller underserviced areas. For these procedures where there's an enormous backlog and continued demand and an aging population, you know, all the factors we've talked about, it makes sense to have a single point of access. You register into a single system, a wait list set by priority of needs, and then you get access to therapy on the next available slot across the province. So that would also reduce some of the inequalities we're seeing geographically across the province, which are important to address as part of the plan. Uh, Dr. Naiman, just a final comment on this. Uh, and it's interesting because uh, Dr. Michael Warner at Michael Guerin Hospital in Toronto said in recent weeks, he was talking about this very scenario that we have these operating rooms. We could be using them more around the clock. We could be uh, providing more public health care. Uh, and yet it doesn't seem like it's something that's being entertained. And yet we're allowing this private operation to work in a public setting. That's exactly right. So this is this this example just shows that we have a capacity that's not being used. We're going to pay a private company to do to do this. Nobody has been trans, uh, transparent in what the fees the government will be paying them to do it, and then they're going to be taking away human health resources from other aspects. 
It's the same thing exists right now in the hospitals for MRIs. I have patients waiting a year to get an MRI. And the reason isn't because there is a shortage of MRIs. It's we don't have the technicians to be running the MRIs 24-7. And so people wait. And so the government seems to really want to work on privatization as a way to increase um, efficiencies within the system. But there appears to be other things that have been neglected. And if we address that, then it will help people receive care much faster. Seems to be such a missed opportunity. Definitely. Yeah. Um, We have time just for a few more comments uh, from each of you. I did want to get to uh, more topics here, but uh, importantly, it has uh, it has monopolized all of us these last three years. The COVID-19 pandemic is uh, three years old this coming Saturday, March 11th. Where are we at? Will the pandemic be declared over soon? Your opinions on that? I'll start with Dr. Moore. Well, I think, in my opinion, the pandemic is over. Uh, But what we're left with is the fact that COVID, just like influenza, is going to be a virus that's with us forever. And we are going to have to deal with it with some sort of intermittent vaccination strategy. I think one of the important things with the pandemic is going to be, now that it is over, or in a sense is over, to look back at what happened, what what was good, what was bad, and what we did, so that we can learn from it, because everything that we read tells us that we're going to have another pandemic with some other type of virus. It's, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Uh, Dr. Naiman. I think um, people's behavior shows that they're done with, with the virus. They want to live their life, and they want to move forward. I think people still have to be aware that, you know, there's still a risk that you can become quite ill when you get COVID. And hopefully, you know, moving forward, one of the big things that I've noticed over the three years is that people have lost compassion and empathy for other people. And I hope that everybody can sort of take a step back and find that we realize that we've gone through a really hard time, but we should really um, be kind and considerate to other people. Important message. And Dr. Razak, you were among those who helped guide us through this pandemic. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think we're in a much better place than we were uh, one or two years ago. If you look at uh, people getting severe COVID pneumonia, as the rates of those have gone down considerably. But I do think that the virus spreading at still a relatively accelerated rate through communities and through populations is causing a lot of damage. We're seeing excess mortality in general is still high in Canada. I mean, there's more people dying than expected as these waves go through. And I do think that we have to recognize that the world we live in now is different than the one that we were in in 2019 and early 2020. And part of that is adaptive strategies that allow us to be as safe as possible while living a full life. So I think things like keeping your vaccination update updated, there's a new NACI recommendation right. that many people would be eligible for another round of bivalent vaccines. Um, using a mask during times when there are surges of virus, things like that that are adaptive, that protect you, but still allow you to do all the things, whether it's work or family or other things that you value. I'd like to see us get to that place, but I still think we have a way to go. Medical Record Panel, thank you all very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Malcolm Moore is a medical oncologist at Princess Margaret Cancer Center. Dr. Fahad Razak is an internist and epidemiologist at Unity Health Toronto. And Dr. Alyssa Naiman is a family physician and founder and medical director of the medical station in Toronto. You can hear their comments every Wednesday here on Fight Back after the noon news. It's Jane for Libby. And coming up in the second half hour of Fight Back, Embrace Equity, the theme of this year's International Women's Day. We discuss with a Canadian senator and a provincial member of parliament next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. On this International Women's Day today, we are marking the occasion on Fight Back by speaking with two Canadian women leaders 
who are not only prominent for their work in their fields, but also for advocating for our more diverse communities. Canadian Senator Salma Altajouan and Ontario NDP MPP Kristen Wong-Tam, who represents Toronto Centre. Welcome to both of you. Actually, I think we're just getting the senator on the line. Kristen Wong-Tam, welcome. Thank you very much. And happy International Women's Day to you. You too, Jane, and to the senator. Toronto residents know you well uh, as a longtime vocal city councillor who has now transitioned to provincial politics. Uh, Just a personal question. How are you enjoying your new role? Um, I really enjoy being a member of the Ontario NDP caucus. Uh, One of the best things about it, of course, is that we have a strong caucus full of uh, remarkable women leaders. And uh, and of course, our party is led by uh, Marit Stiles. Uh, so it has been a, a wonderful transition, and I've really enjoyed some of the new friends I've met across the aisles, whether they belong to the Conservative government, Liberals or Independents. Um, it's been a, a, an honor to serve. Uh, could you uh, please tell us about the women in your life who've had a positive impact on you and uh, maybe helped you to get to where you are today? Oh, goodness. Um, <laughs> you know, there's just been so many extraordinary individuals. Um, I'm going to start with my mother. Uh, my mother has a grade six education. Uh, she has only no physical labor, has always worked uh, in, and toiled in factories. Um, and, uh, and she has demonstrated uh, throughout my life that if you have one adult, one caring parent, um, and of course you want more than, than one caring adult uh, in every child's life, but if you have that one, uh, you know, you will be uh, shared with a lot of love. Uh, they will tell you that you can do anything. And my mom uh, and my dad, to be quite honest, both did that for me. Um, but I would never be where I am without the love and support of my parents, um, especially my mother. Isn't that amazing, Kristen? Um, most successful women, when you ask them who had influence on them, they refer to their mothers. It just shows how important motherhood, parenthood is to the development of the next generation. Uh, yes, and, and you know, and throughout the uh, and throughout my life, I think I have been very blessed to to meet some remarkable adults. I can think of some teachers uh, along the way, especially in my uh, you know high school years, as, you know, especially as a teenager coming out of the closet, uh, looking for acceptance and finding the steady hand of a of an adult. Um, and and sometimes they were women, and oftentimes uh, they were strong women leaders who who just said, you know, you're going to be okay, kid, and and would just sort of pick me up, dust me off, and carry me forward. Um, so I know that, you know, I stand today as a member of provincial parliament uh, in the most diverse riding in, in Canada, but I didn't get here without standing on the shoulders of giants and giant women who came before me. So I'm internally grateful that I benefit from their work, and now it's my job. I hope that it's, I can do it as well as they did, but to make sure that I uplift others now. As an LGBTQ woman, a woman um, in the LGBTQ community, uh, how important is it for you to be open about who you are fully open uh, in terms of what you can do for in, in inspiration for the next generation? Um, I think it's very important. Um, I, um, uh, when I left city council, I, I took the courage to sort of step out of the closet one more time, uh, and, uh, and came out as non-binary, uh, using they and them pronouns. And, you know, it, it wasn't easy, um, because I, I was very nervous to be very honest. Um, even though I fought all my life for equality and I wanted to make sure that, you know, everybody has a seat at the table. But when it comes to sort of advocating for yourself, it took, it took a little bit more out of the reserve. Um, and so I recognize that, you know, my presence is important. Uh, you know, my identity as a member of the 2S LGBT community is only one aspect of me. Mm-hmm. Um, I do carry that forward. I try to, you know, make sure that I'm visible. So therefore that those who are, who are coming behind me, those who would like to come into this building will know that it can be done. Uh, and I know that when I speak in the house, there are probably many people who are just cheering me on who, who probably never thought to themselves, if they're a member of the queer community, that they could not be here. Um, and I want to tell those, those individuals, those, those youth and young adults, and, you know, perhaps even those who are now mid-age, it's never too late. Um, there is a seat for you and you deserve to be here. Well, I'll tell you a personal story, Kristen. Uh, when my daughter came out, uh, it's almost eight years ago now, when she was 19, uh, and she and I were, you know, coming to this realization together. She was telling me this for the first time. We mentioned you, or I mentioned you. I talked about yeah. Kathleen Wynn and Kristen Wong 
Tam and how, um, you know, they were brave to, to come out long before and created a stage where young people could feel safe uh, coming out. I mean, especially in Toronto. But I just want you to know that, uh, that you have been an example in my family. Oh, thank you. What a what a remarkable story to share with me. I'm I'm so incredibly touched. Thank you, Jane. Uh, and as a mom, um, how how are you raising your son uh, in, in terms of um, him becoming a member of an equitable society? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. My, our our son is uh, almost four years old, and this little guy we call him Bobo. That's his nickname. Uh, Bobo is uh, is an absolute joy to be with. Uh, every day he is full of wonder and and, uh, and and curiosity, and we really do you know let him um, explore. I think it's important for kids to learn in the most creative ways possible. You foster their uh, their imagination, and you tell them that they are loved and safe, and they can just do about anything. So that's the type of uh, environment that we give our our son. We want him to to know his worth, and he's also a racialized boy. My my partner is is uh, is, is mixed race Indian and Dutch, and of course I'm Chinese background. And uh, and so you know he's growing up in a multicultural family. His uh, his grandparents, all four of them, which are so blessed that they're healthy and with us, they all have an active role in his life, and as well as his his cousins, he's got you know six and seven cousins. And so you know the family that we try to build for him is one of assigned family, but also chosen family. So he's got this remarkable extended family, a chosen family of uh, of friends and 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 chosen loved ones who all help build his life. Um, and we want to make sure that he understands that he's growing up in the most multicultural city uh, in the world. Uh, we have a lot of privilege of, of being uh, homeowners, uh, but also we, we recognize that we have to continue to, to build alliances so that he can have all the opportunities uh, that he deserves before him. And that means that he learns about equality. We, we do have, you know, conversations about accepting others for their differences. And as children do, sometimes they get into a little bicker. Um, and, uh, and we, we sit him down and we, we sort of walk it through very slowly, um, on how he deserves to be loved. And therefore, it's important for him to exchange, exchange and, and extend love and gentleness to others. And that's what you can do with a young four-year-old. Um, and as he grows, um, you know, that will evolve. Those, those journeys and conversations will change too. Kristen, thank you for spending some of your International Women's Day with us here on Zoomer Radio. Thank you. It's an honor. Ontario NDP MPP Kristen Wong-Tam for Toronto Centre. And our Canadian Senator Salma Atalajan has been waiting on the line. Thank you, Senator, for listening and happy International Women's Day to you. Uh, Thank you for having me and happy International Women's Day to you too. Tell us the story of uh, how you began and how you made your way to the Canadian Senate. Um, you know, I'm uh, an immigrant. I, I came to Canada in 1980, and um, I, I came from a political family, so I was very interested in the politics of Canada. Um, and I would always get involved in discussions, and, you know, quite a few of my friends would say, you should get into politics. But, you know, when you're new to the country, you're trying to establish yourself, you're trying to find yourself, you're trying to, you know, um, fit in. And and I think for us, like for me specifically, I came from a home that was full of people and I came here and the loneliness hit me and I thought, okay, I have to do something about this. So I went out and I got a job, part-time job in the school next to me just to sort of be out and, you know, uh, mingle with the you know, people and get to know people. And um, eventually I was introduced to, you know, the Conservative Party. They liked me. And um, the rest, I guess, you know, I, I never in my wildest dreams thought I would be um, appointed to the Senate. Um, it's it's the most amazing place to work in. And even now, as I'm walking up, I you know, to the Senate chamber, I say, wow, how lucky am I? And how much uh, do you think about in terms of your representation for racialized women and Muslim women, somebody to admire, somebody to look up to, especially young women? It, it means so much. And I'm reminded of this every time I travel or I go to an event. And I remember as a new senator, this was uh, late in 2010, and I, I was in Edmonton. And this young Somali girl, she must have been about nine, ten in hijab, came to me and said, you know, Senator Salma, when I see you, I know there's a place for me in Canada. 
Yeah, that's it right there, isn't it? Um, and I was, and it was the same um, last week in Ekalawit. Uh, you know, a hundred Muslims in Ekalawit, and we were doing, uh, you know, a Ramadan project. You know, um, making food baskets. Like, you know, there's a lot of food insecurity in Ekalawit, and the four-year-old would come running to me and just hug me. And that and that meant so much. And and how delighted they were that there was someone who was you know Muslim and who was like them. And yet you know uh, there was this respect because I was in in Parliament. Uh, Senator, what is important to you uh, in terms of um, the agenda for Canada? The important issues for Canada. What do you see as a way of moving forward? So. I'm the chair of the Human Rights Committee, and um, last year, as we were finishing one of our studies, which was on uh, the forced sterilization um, of Indigenous and racialized women, I was thinking, you know, what should we be looking at next? And I was shocked to find out that the most Muslims killed in a G7 um, country was in Canada. And as a Muslim, I thought, uh, you know, the Muslims are almost 5% of uh, the population. And I thought, let me explore what's happening. And, and because it's International Women's Day, I, I choose to speak about this is because we found that um, there is Islamophobia, but the worst targets are women, the women who uh, wear the hijab. We heard stories in Vancouver. We heard stories in Edmonton. We heard stories in Quebec uh, City, in the mosque where, you know, the terrorist attack had taken place. Um, and and I, you know, and women were speaking of intergenerational trauma. They were speaking of being abused in front of their children and they were helpless. And in one case um, in Quebec City, when she, when she called the mosque, the, the poli- I mean, called the police, the police did not want to charge uh, the woman who was abusing her. And when she insisted, they charged the woman who was abusing her, but they charged her also. And she said, this happened in front of my three young daughters. Mm. I, I want Canada to be a safe haven for everyone, and it is. But we unfortunately, like we've seen the rise of anti-Semitism, we're seeing the rise of um, Islamophobia too. And and we know that, you know, the uh, London attack, uh, you know, gentleman who was killed outside the mosque in Brampton and, uh, you know, and, and in Edmonton, the women wearing hijab, you know, were being spat on and coffee thrown on them. And uh, I, I, I want Canada and I want Canadians to see people for what they are, not by what they wear right. or don't wear. And before I let you go, uh, the theme for this year's International Women's Day is embrace equity. And what does that mean to you? Uh, As a woman and as a woman with two young daughters, um, we have many challenges. We still, um, you know, and and more so in in the racialized uh, community, women long to be treated equally. long to have the same opportunities, long to be paid the same. And, you know, and it can be done. It is done. And and I'm hoping that, uh, you know, next year's theme will be something more more positive. You know, yeah. we're talking about equity. Um, it, it's not a conversation we should be having in 2023 because, um, and, and I, I see it, especially in, in and here, as I, I speak to you as a Muslim woman, even, even when I decided to run, I had men telling me, oh, why are you doing this? Men who wouldn't take my flyers um, because they said a woman should not be going outside uh, of the home. But you did. <laughs> I did. Yes. And uh, and and the same men now come to me <laughs> with a big smile and how happy they are <laughs> because I'm in a certain position. Amazing. Uh, Canadian Senator Salma Atalajan, we thank you very much for your time here on Zoomer Radio. Thank you very much. And coming up next, still to come, we've focused on women, careers, but what about life in the home? How has it changed or stayed the same? We discuss the results of a new survey next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. 
Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. As we celebrate International Women's Day, a study that looks at home life for Canadian women and men tells us a lot about where we're at when it comes to embracing equity. Joining us to discuss, Oksana Kiszczuk, Director of Strategy and Insights at Abacus Data. Oksana, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Tell us about your research and your findings. Yeah, so uh, this International Women's Day marks the first sort of release of our She, Her, Her study, which is a look at a variety of different uh, ways in which Canadian women are living their lives, um, their behaviors, their outlook, their responsibilities at home, in the workplace, uh, and their role in making financial decisions. So all sorts of pieces there. And and we found uh, a lot of different things, but, but one of the sort of biggest underlying trends that I think is important is just how much sort of traditional baggage women are are carrying as we continue to break through the glass ceiling uh, more and more every day. Hmm. Uh, So let's get down to uh, the specifics of what you found. Yeah, yeah. So what we found was that women are uh, as they continue to enter the workforce more and more are still largely responsible for a lot of the work in the home, such as things like cooking, cleaning, grocery shopping, parenting, um, while their partners don't pick up um, near the same level of, of work on, on that. And these sort of what we call maybe pink tasks or tasks that were traditionally um, sort of done by, by women um, are also things that um, carry over in the workplace too. So things like uh, taking notes, or taking care of social responsibilities and, and making the team feel united are tasks that uh, typically fall to women a lot more than men in the workplace, too. And uh, did you get a sense uh, through your survey whether women who are in traditional roles at home are frustrated by those roles, or have they divided roles enough with their partner, um, be it a man or a woman, that, they're, that they feel satisfied that the work is being shared? Yeah, I think there's a, a little bit of frustration there and that the work is, is not balanced um, among among parties. We looked at a variety of different tasks in the home, things like parenting, cleaning, cooking, grocery shopping, paying bills, home maintenance, financial planning, sort of all the, the pieces that, that it takes to sort of run a, run a household. And there is only one task where, where women say their partner does more in, and that's in home maintenance. And so um, I think there's there's sort of this underlying frustration that the sort of sharing of responsibilities or how they're being divided up isn't equal. But I think it's come a long way, right? When you look at decades ago, if you think about the 1950s and, and the stereotypes and that um, men basically didn't do anything when it came to the kitchen, a lot of men enjoy cooking and have no problem cleaning up. I have one at home. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yes. Yeah. And of course, this isn't to say that this is uh, the case in, in all households and in all relationships. Uh, nor did we just study uh, heterosexual relationships, um, and, and men are are uh, are sort of stepping into those roles too. But I think the the sort of more fascinating piece uh, for me was that um, as sort of women maybe take on the role of a primary income earner and sort of that the out of the house responsibility a little bit more, they're still picking up a little bit more of, of the tasks at home um, than maybe they otherwise want to. So certainly lots of progress being made, um, but but some interesting results nonetheless. Right. And I want to get to some of those interesting results as well. And I'd love to open the phone lines. I mean, they are open, but we only have five minutes left. But if you quickly wanted to call in and talk about how work is divided in your home, the numbers are 416-360-0740 or one 740 Before I get into some of the more interesting or some stuff you told us was interesting, but uh, some other things that I I wouldn't have thought of. Uh, what about um, when it comes to demographics, younger men and women partnerships versus older men and women partnerships? Yeah, so that's something that we, we didn't dig into in the study just yet and, and is yet to come. And I think that there is progress um, sort of being made in, in dividing. Uh, younger men are maybe more likely to, to pick up um, some of the tasks, things like parenting, um, those aspects as well. Um, are, are becoming more divided. So there is sort of this the hope on the horizon about um, a more balanced uh, sort of to-do list at home um, between partners. 
I'm speaking with Oksana Kishchuk, Director of Strategy and Insights at Abacus Data, about their findings for an International Women's Day study. This is interesting. 28% of women feel very comfortable with money management, which is eight points lower than men. So it seems like, in general, most men and women aren't comfortable with money management, but women less so than men. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, money management is a, is a fascinating sort of piece of the study and something that that I'm just interested in too. But there's a, there's not a lot of confidence in in knowledge, right, among men and women, though women less so about different financial pieces. And where the gap really comes uh, to light between men and women is on pieces that are um, related to personal finance, to to building wealth and building financial stability. So things like the stock market, um, real estate, mortgages, retirement planning, all of those sorts of pieces that build stability. Uh, financially are are areas where women are particularly less knowledgeable uh, than men. It just seems like the way to go about it is to play to your strengths, right? If you like to do the monthly expenses, then regardless whether you're the man or the woman in the relationship, you should do the expenses, right? And same with cooking, same with, uh, well, nobody really likes cleaning up, but if uh, one partner (laughs) enjoys cooking, then the other partner can uh, clean up afterward. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's it's all about sort of that balance and making sure that that people feel um, sort of respected and 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 sort of at even stakes. Um, I, th- I think on finances, it's important to make sure that um, women do have opportunities to have the same level of knowledge um, should they want to to be more involved in those pieces, um, and and that everyone um, who who maybe wants to retire. Uh, should should have the opportunity to, to learn a little bit more about that piece, too. And what about this? Uh, 29% of women, so not even one in three, say that they find a lot of the consumer products that they're interested in seem to ignore women, and the advertising is targeted to men. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so we were interested to see whether or not um, women felt that they were being treated as um, sort of their own consumers in, in the marketplace. And it seems that that organizations are doing uh, a pretty good job of, of that. But there is a, a not too um, small mi- minority of, of women who see that products could be better targeted um, towards them. Um, a lot of uh, another stat that, that isn't here, but that we looked at was um, women feel that, that sometimes products sort of play into stereotypes about um, how women behave or the types of products that women are interested in rather than sort of speaking to their realities. So a lot to unpack there on kind of how to communicate um, products to, to women in a way that um, makes them feel welcomed and, and accepted and it speaks to, to what they're doing. Oksana, any uh, final thoughts about your study, the research on this International Women's Day? Uh, no, I think we, we covered a lot of the, the main topics. Thank you uh, very much for, for getting uh, me on the show today. And uh, we'll continue to, to be releasing some of the results. So looking forward to digging into it a little bit more. Pleasure to chat with you. Have a great day and happy International Women's Day to you. Yeah, you too. Thanks so much. Oksana Kischuk is Director of Strategy and Insights at Abacus Data. It is Jane for Libby who returns tomorrow. She's looking forward to uh, joining you along with the Tune Into the Town panel when we talk all things municipal here on Fight Back on Thursdays after the noon news. And I will talk to you bright and early tomorrow morning on the Morning Zoom with Sam and Jane. Bob Comsick is next with your latest news update. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.